you would take your Bible and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And if you're a first-time guest with us today, we're so thankful that you are here. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there is a Bible in the seat in front of you, and that is our gift to you. There's nothing better that we could give you than a copy of God's Word. So if you would turn to John's first letter, and we'll be in chapter 3, focusing mainly on verse 5 this morning. John's first letter is written for the joy of a very peculiar group of people. He's written to these people that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and yet they may have joy in their fellowship with God. That joy not being rooted in the circumstances of their lives, but in His love, in His advocacy, in His atonement. These people are not holy and righteous in their own merit. They are sinful lawbreakers. And yet, God has declared them to be called children. People for His own possession. They have a new identity that impacts every area of their life. They're individuals who at one time were hostile to God, but through the work of the Spirit alone, they have now become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and have claims to all of His inheritance. John knows that Christians may sin. And he knows that this sin will impact the assurance that they feel, the security that they feel in their relationship to God. That uh, they, they will wonder if they're really in Christ or not as they go on sinning. So he writes in opposition to those who would say sin doesn't matter. Because John knows better than that. Now, we ultimately, our salvation is sure. Redemption is sure. It is completed by Christ alone. But ultimately, we can still negatively impact, damage our assurance, can be attacked in our sin lives and also by false doctrine. And so John writes clearly, emphatically, against false teachers. To John, the joy of the Christian life is wrapped up intimately with sound doctrine. And so he writes in verse 7 of chapter 3 of his first letter, Little children, dear ones, my precious people, let no one deceive you. Though redemption is as sure as the rising of the sun, you may suffer many pains in this life if you are not doctrinally sound in your understanding of sin and your directive to put it to death in your own life individually. Now, our redemption, to be clear, is not attained by our annihilating our own sin. Our redemption is accomplished through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and that alone. 
And what a joy that is. And in fact, what we find is that we live in a world that is so confused about the order of where holiness fits into our relationship with God. There are many different denominations that, and they generally won't use the word holiness or righteousness or even Christ-like. But they will teach some form of Christianity where our holiness must be accomplished before we approach God for salvation. And as it turns out, John encourages us that it's the other way around. It is the righteousness of Christ alone that merits our salvation. So we come as sinners to the throne of grace for salvation. But once we are in Christ and the Spirit has birthed us anew, what happens is that our holiness will naturally flow out of that position. As John has already written, we are the called children of God. So we are. And being called children of God, then holiness or Christ-likeness, righteousness, will naturally in increasing measure flow from our lives. We have to have a right understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith alone if we are to ever understand righteousness and holiness. In fact, I would argue we have no clue of what holiness actually is until we come to a right understanding of justification by faith alone. Because man in his own devices will try to please God in his own errant strength continually and he will miss the mark. The other problem is those who are antinomian. Those who come, and John writes against, obviously, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The word lawlessness translated there in verse 4 is the Greek word from which we derive the word antinomian or against the law. Individuals who come into the church and who say, well, Christ has saved us by grace so we can live however we want. The law has no claim over our lives anymore. Friends, that kind of thinking is sinful in and of itself. It'll lead us to a life ignoring the Word of God, living in the passions of our own flesh, and we can never undo our salvation if we are actually in Christ, but we can be robbed of the joy of genuine fellowship, walking in step with the Spirit of Almighty God. And that has happened in the lives of far too many. So thankful for a resurgence in so many churches in America today, uh, coming awake and alive to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But sadly, in those same circles, there is often a misunderstanding that now we have no relationship at all to what God has prescribed in His law. Lawlessness is sin. And we are not to reject the moral imperatives of the law outright. Now, can we ever garner salvation by attaining to the law, by trying to honor the law, by heaping rules on top of people's heads? No. We are only made righteous in the sight of God through the shed blood of Christ and through His intercession as it is applied to our lives by the Spirit of God alone. 
If we look at the state of the church today and we see that there is so much rampant immorality, there is this reflex in the life of so many churches that the pastor will then go to heap on more contempt and tell people to try harder, do better, stop sinning, cut it out. You know what that does? Nothing. It does not accomplish one ounce of sanctification in the body of Christ. But you know what does actually bring sanctification to those of us who have been bought by the precious blood of the Lamb? Understanding that our justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that then is the foundation, the root for our joy to pursue holiness in our lives. And not to push the law aside, but to consider what are its implications in our lives in 2021. Not that we would have the greatest life now, but that God would receive the most glory in our living. That is the question. John here writes... So that we would understand the nature of sin itself. Because these antinomians that creep into the church and they come into the church all the time. And quite frankly, I think every one of us in this room have an antinomian problem. We can't think of antinomians as a group of people. I think we are much better served in bringing glory to Christ by realizing there is an antinomian reflex in all of us. To explain away the law. To bring the law low. To think that it has no implication in our lives. To think lightly of sin. Well, John doesn't want us to think lightly of sin. He knows that the world is full of misunderstanding about the nature of sin. In our day and age, it often comes when men stand in pulpits and preach about sin and the topic of sin in a relativistic way. They will make statements like this. We all mess up sometimes. Well, nobody's perfect. To err is human. Listen, if you sin, you can just repent later anyway. All of those kinds of statements ultimately miss the mark because what the individual is doing who believes those things is he is looking at the problem of sin in a horizontal plane. He's looking to neighbor and comparing himself against neighbor and saying, you know what? We all are really the same and so it doesn't matter. I mean, we all sin. We all err. We all mess up sometimes. So they're there. It's not really that big of a deal. The reality of the biblical narrative is that sin is not first and primarily against our neighbor, although we do sin against our brothers and sisters and against other individuals who are lost in their trespasses and sins. We sin against our neighbor. But the Bible records that the primary problem with sin is that sin is cosmic rebellion against the Holy God. That's the problem. Sin is not just an oops. Sin is bound up with our nature apart apart from Christ. Sin is a positive pollution of every area of our lives. Beloved, as we said this morning, there is not one area in our life 
that sin has not tainted our living. Everything that we do is marred by the radical depravity that we are born with. Radical depravity, total depravity is a doctrine that is highly controversial in the religious world but is erudite and clear in the minds of biblical Christians. Radical depravity, I think, is misunderstood sometimes because people think that radical depravity teaches that man can't do anything good. And we've seen people do good things. We've seen lost people do good things. We've all had the neighbor who, when we get sick, serves us in some way and yet will reject the gospel outright. Men can do morally good things on a horizontal plane. But then again, our sin isn't first and primarily a horizontal issue. It's first and primarily an issue between us and God. You see, the fact is we can do good outward moral acts, and even those acts the doctrine of radical depravity teaches us are tainted with rebellion. We miss the mark in our motives. We miss the mark in our belief. We can do that nice thing for our neighbor because at the end of the day, we want our neighbor to return the favor. We can do that nice thing for our neighbor because at the end of the day, we want the rest of the neighborhood to see us carrying that covered dish to their front door. And we miss the mark of God's holy standard. You see, often we take sin too lightly. Sin, again, having been impacting every area of our lives. We are so used to sin. We are so used to... I, I, I sat this week as I read through what John writes here from verses 4 through 10, and I thought, we don't even have a good conception of what a sinless world looks like. The, the, the very best that we have at times is merely... To just be a little bit more righteous than we were yesterday. But friends, we learned several weeks ago that we are bound for glory. We are bound for a place where we will, as the hymnist wrote, sin no more. Isn't that a, a joy to consider? We have sinned so long and so often that we are used to it. John counters that sin is light in his argument in verses 4 through 10. Sin in verse 4 is pointed out as lawlessness. Sin, in fact, is a positive breaking of God's law. It's not merely, oops, I messed up. We are willful rebels to the statutes of God. We are disobedient. We cross the line. We transgress God's law. People will say God wouldn't send good people to hell. That's true. The problem is there's just not a single one that is good outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, not one. It's our active disobedience that merited the suffering of Christ. And John writes to us this morning, to deal with the problem that we think far too little of the weight 
a consequence of our rebellion. So with that in mind, if you would stand and do honor to the reading of God's Word. We'll begin in verse 4 of John, 1 John chapter 3. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. For the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of God to you and I today. Would you pray with me, beloved? Father God, we come this morning thankful for this truth, thankful for the awakening in our minds, and we pray that you would press into our hearts the reality that sin is rebellion against you. It is weighty. It costs you your precious blood. And Father, this morning I pray that you would write the truths that we speak of on all of our hearts eternally. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You see, our greatest trouble is not that we make little mistakes. It's not that we all err. It's not oops. It's, and we do those things. But our greatest trouble is that through our first father, Adam, we are polluted through and through with sin. We are radically depraved. Jesus didn't come just to prop us up a little bit so that we could be better tomorrow than we were the day before. Jesus came because we had a radical problem. Because we are each born in our own sinful nature. We are descendants of Adam. We are individuals who run from the law of God. Who willfully transgress the law. We confirm that reality early on in our lives. We all like to look at children as though they are these innocent little creatures who have never done anything wrong. Oh, how foolish we are. In fact, last evening, our youngest, Bennett, came into our room as I was finishing my study. So, bless his heart. Clatworthy children live in this constant state of fear that anything they do can be turned into a sermon illustration, mainly because it can. And Bennett comes into our room, and I think most five-year-old little boys want to nestle up and snuggle with their mama. Uh, that's not unnatural. Uh, but Bennett comes into our room and he goes, pew, pew, Daddy, I'm going to zap you. And I said, well, why are you going to zap me? And he goes, because I want your spot in bed. And I thought to myself, well, you see, there it is. Why do we go, at, go to war with one another? Because there's something that we want. We can't get it. So we attack our neighbor. 
And here's the reality. We all chuckle about that, but I know something about my son. He loves his mother enough and enjoys being next to her enough that if he were really given the power to zap me, somebody else would be preaching this morning. We are born in a state of rebellion, seeking out our own ends. The writer of Ecclesiastes tells us that God fashioned us in holiness, in righteousness, but we have all sought out our own schemes. You see, our greatest problem is that we are guilty before the judgment seat of God without Christ. Without Christ this morning, you as a human being are under the wrath of Almighty God. So then we ask this question of the text. If that's our greatest problem, if sin is really that weighty, that millions of people will spend an eternity in hell under the weight of God forever, why is it that Jesus came into this world? Why the incarnation? Why the self-emptying of Christ? Why did He leave the glories of heaven? Why the betrayal? Why the lashes? Why the mockery? Why the weight of the wooden beams carried on His back to that hill? Why the nails? Why the cross? Why the resurrection? Why? was Jesus manifested into the world. Now one thing that we have to see is that in this text, in all of John's writing, John loves the word manifested or other places will render the same Greek word appeared. He, he loves to use that word. First John chapter 1, we remember John writing, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. Jesus appeared bodily. He was made incarnate. He came from the glories of heaven to live on the earth. And we have seen it, John writes, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, there that word is again, that which, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. Why, though, was He manifested? Why did He come? Well, John gives us two reasons in our passage this morning. Look with me. Verse 5, where we're going to spend most of our time. You know that He appeared or He was manifested in order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. And then in verse 8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So let's consider what is written here in verse 5 and what, what we need to come to, real, uh, to, to grips with in verse 5 and in the economy of the Word of God are the things that John, that the Bible does not argue for the incarnation, for the coming of Christ. Number one, He did not come merely to reveal the Father uh, as a revelation of God, as a manifestation of God. Now, the Bible, John, in fact, himself records in John 14, verse 9, that He, uh, Jesus saying, He that has seen Me has seen the Father. 
Jesus did come and is a revelation of the triune Godhead. Those who have seen Jesus have seen the Father. But this is not the explicit reason for Jesus' coming. God could have chosen to reveal Himself another way. He did not come as merely a moral good teacher. Now, He does have teaching, and it is central to our faith as Christians and to our practice. But His teaching is not the reason that He came. He could have taught us apart from His first coming, apart from the Incarnation. He also didn't come just merely to serve as a moral example. And friends, I believe that we have drank in wholesale into the church that this is the reason Jesus came. And and, and we are downstream about a hundred years from the explosion of liberal theology in America that says the gospel is you living out Christ-like life to your neighbor. It is ultimately up to you To live the righteous life and do good things. Friends, one of the the best writers in opposition to that nonsense is J. Grisham Machen. And, And he points out clearly that the gospel is actually something, the true gospel is something that happened in history. It is completed in Christ. And all of this liberal theology is nothing more than a man-centered view of the world trying to get us to do what they in whatever particular liberal bent they have want us to do. Now here's the problem. We can set in largely conservative theological churches and that still has impact in our lives. We still look around the church and say, well, you better straighten up and fly right. You better do the list of things that are good. But ultimately, that's not the reason that Jesus came. He didn't come just to prop Himself up as a moral example that we could mimic Him and bring redemption to the earth. That's not how it works. If redemption was up to you and I, Brian, if redemption was up to you and I, how many people do you think would get saved? You might not make it. Yeah. Brian said, I might not make No one would be saved if it was left up to us. He's not just merely a moral example. So many people want to take Jesus and make him into that moral example. He, they want to just, and he is the matchless one. He is the one who is who has lived in perfect obedience, but that obedience has a connection to the law of God that is significant. And remember, some of you might not know this about me, but when I was a young person about fifth grade, I um, moved to the St. Louis, Missouri area with my mother and um, our downstairs neighbor were, were Mormons and they were very nice moral people. They followed the moral example of Jesus. And I went to church with them on several occasions and I will never forget, it has been seared into my mind, I'll remember it as long as I live, walking into a sanctuary of a Latter-day Saint church And this sweet lady, moral woman, telling me, you'll notice that there are no crosses anywhere on our buildings or in our churches because it is not the cross of Christ that matters. It is merely His moral example to us. That might sound benign, but that'll send you straight to hell. Because it is not up to us to accomplish redemption. Holiness does not flow out of our lives 
apart from the working of Christ and the redemption of the Spirit of God in our lives. So the question is, why does John say that Jesus has come? He says, you know. That's another word that John loves to use. He wants us to know something. He doesn't, John isn't the kind of feel-good preacher that wants us to have the, 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 the really warm and fuzzy experience. He wants us to know something that then impacts our affections. He starts with our seat of understanding and reasoning. He writes, the reason that Jesus came, verse 5, you know that He appeared, that He was manifested in order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sins. He has not come as a mere revelation, as a teacher, or as a moral example. He came because the law demanded satisfaction. Because man had rebelled against Almighty God and, and the wrath of God was abiding upon lost humanity. And humanity being sold under sin required that Jesus came bodily in the flesh. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. In Him, there is no sin. The entire New Testament reveals that we are under the law and apart from Christ that we stood condemned until Christ came. And the only way that we could be made right in light of God's righteous law was if we had one who would take our place, who would take our punishment, and could satisfy the legal demands of our debt. It is only when we understand the, the, the law and its demands that we understand the reason why Jesus came. The law is very significant in the life of every Christian. It is the schoolmaster, the basis for why our Savior had to come in the first place. Our cosmic rebellion, not just our oops, but our willful disobedience required that Jesus came. Jesus says in Luke chapter 19, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Hold that in your mind for a minute. We'll come to that later. It's important. Understanding the law's demand is, is, is that we are sinlessly perfect. Not only that we, we don't do the things that God forbids, but that we actively would do the things that God requires. We see that all of us in every area of our life and, and every day transgress this law. And then knowing that it is sinless perfection that is demanded in the law, it, this is why the last statement that John makes here is so important. Because Jesus was perfect. He was spotless. He was without blemish. John writes it, in Him was no sin. We were positionally under Adam, under the condemnation of our first father. But Jesus was conceived of the Virgin Mary and broke our line of being under the fallen, sinful, depraved line of Adam. And now every person in Christ no longer bears that position. Some people take their fathers for granted. Some people take the individual who is their parent for granted because they have a good, in an earthly sense, parent. But the individual who has either no father or who has a father who is abusive and who brings difficulty into their life, 
knows the joy of having a father who blesses his children, who loves and provides for his children. Friends, every one of us who are members of the body of Christ know what it means to have a father who is wretched. Because that father was Adam. And every one of us are his children. We are his descendants. And our nature is radically depraved because he followed Eve and he followed Satan in willful disobedience against what God had clearly spoken. But we have a new identity. We, John tells us, are the called children of God. Our Father is now through the blood of Christ, God Himself. We've been reunited. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. It is because Christ was sinless that we can cling to that promise. In Him was, is no sin. And this has to be the starting point. This has to be the baseline of what we understand about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. To miss this about the person of Christ is to totally misunderstand the entire gospel and salvation altogether. And this is why John uses the strongest possible language to condemn those who attack the person and the work of Christ. John doesn't come and say, you know, I know there are a lot of religious teachers today. And I hope that you find the ones that scratch the particular itch of your theological ear. I, I, I hope that you, you, you find some good preaching and that you get to sing songs that you like to. But, and I would contend with you a few things, but they're really not that important. It's not how John writes. John emphatically points to those who would undermine the doctrine of of the person and the work of Christ, the reason for why He came, He calls those individuals antichrists. He calls them liars. He says we need to be careful about what we receive from teachers like this. If you don't have your Christology nailed down, you will lead people to hell. If you don't know why Jesus came, if you think Jesus just came as a moral teacher, as a moral example, as one who wanted to reveal God to us, you miss the point of the gospel. You miss what God has done. And John this morning would call you a liar and an antichrist. Writes in verse 22, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the one who came to bear the wrath of God, to be a propitiation? You see, if we're wrong again about Jesus and why He came, we are amiss in the entire narrative of the Bible and in the entire reality of salvation. Jesus was the spotless Son of God. He had no capacity for sin. He was absolutely impeccable. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with, us, with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet is without sin. He was not polluted by Adam's transgression. He committed no sins of his own. He was tempted and tried, and yet he did not buckle. Jesus, when Satan tempted him in the wilderness, 
It was like shooting a BB gun at a freight train trying to get Jesus to sin. It was not going to happen. He didn't even strain under the temptation. He stood flat-footed even in His humanity and He lived perfectly in response, answering from the Word of God all of the temptations that Satan threw at Him. He's not one that's just done a little bit better. He's not one that's just a little morally superior. He's not one who is just giving us good teaching so that our society can be liberated from the constraints of whatever societal system. He is the perfect one who came to bear our sin. He is the spotless Lamb of Almighty God. He is the one in whom we have eternal life. And this is where we have to come and have a good understanding of the active and the passive obedience of Christ. Not only was there no sin in Christ's birth, not only was, he, was the conception immaculate, and, and now there's an entire new human line in the person of Christ, there is this reality of the passive obedience of Christ. And passive, if we think about it, we think that's something that Jesus didn't actually do anything to accomplish. That's not what is meant by passive obedience. Passive obedience is the willful work that Jesus did that our sin would be passed on to Him. That all of our iniquity, every sin that we ever have committed, commit today or will commit in the future, if we are purchased by the blood of Christ, all of the wrath for those sins in particular was poured out on Christ at the cross. That is the passive obedience of Christ when He prayed, Father, not my will, but Your will be done. I will drink from this cup. I will bear the wrath of those who you have sent me to save. And there is also the active obedience of Christ. Not only did He absorb for us in His body the penalty of our sin, and that is consequential in and of itself. He also lived actively in a positive manner. He lived out the imperatives of all of the law of God perfectly. And what we get in response is all of our unrighteousness and all of the areas where we miss the mark are imputed to Christ and then all of His righteous deeds and all of our penalty, all of His righteous deeds are transposed to us imputed to us, and all of our sin is laid upon Him. He obeyed perfectly. Think about that this morning. In your struggle for holiness, in your struggle to live the life that God wants you to live, it's not that the foundation for that life is not to grit your teeth and try harder. The, the foundation for that reality is to remember the active obedience of God on your behalf. To remember that Jesus has already lived the perfect life in your place. Now you have all of the room in the world to follow Him. You're not looking over your shoulder constantly thinking, well, how does God see me? I wonder if I've done it. Friends, one of the hardest things to hear from those who are lying in a hospital bed facing eternity is something along the lines of, I'm just praying that God adds up all of my good works. And he'll be pleased with me. 
Friends, that's not the position of the Christian this morning. We can look to Jesus in his active obedience and we can hear the voice of God saying over the person of Christ, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we can know that positionally today because of the active obedience of Christ, we are welcomed and loved as called children of God. Does that not fuel your desire to live righteously? I mean, does anybody hear that and say, boy, I would love to just go on a bender this weekend. I'd love just to sill willfully against God. You see what happens when we neglect sound doctrine? Is we cut ourselves off at the legs in the motivation that we should have to live the righteous life. God's not waiting for you to clean up your act. Jesus lived the perfect act. J. Grisham Machen on his deathbed wrote to his friend that it was the active obedience of Christ that he was most thankful for in his dying moments. In fact, the last line of that letter, if I remember correctly, he says there's really no hope without it. Unless Jesus lives perfectly. Here's the thing. We would not be permitted into the the courts of God into eternity if merely all that was done is that we were forgiven, that our sin was was expiated, that it was taken away. Because then we would have no righteousness of our own. But Christ has not only taken away our sin, He's also imputed to us His righteousness. Johannes Wallabit... Last name starts with a W. He's a Swiss theologian. How about that? He wrote, Just as the passion of Christ is necessary for the expiation of sin, so His active obedience and righteousness are necessary for the gaining of eternal law. Why? Because Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 25 says, And it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God as He has commanded us. Our responsibility isn't just a list of negatives. Our responsibility is to live a perfectly moral and holy life. A life that we could not live. You see, the law binds us both to punishment for the transgression of the law and calls us to obedience. And here, righteousness in the act of obedience of Christ in the true and accurate meaning of the word consists of actual obedience. So when we are called children of God by John, part of what he is communicating to us is Jesus bore the weight and the penalty of all of our rebellion and he gave us all of his righteousness. Friends, that should cause us to shout. And what he did is he condemned sin. Sin is dead in Christ. Romans chapter 8 verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned. There it is again. Jesus was sent into this world to deal with sin. Apparently sin is a consequential issue. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law may be 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 fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit it is only in Christ that we may find the obedience that the law of God requires not only in that active obedience was just there this moral um, attempt at holiness, 
Jesus was the only acceptable sacrifice. He's the only one that didn't have a sin nature. He's the only good human being ever born into this world. Leviticus chapter 22 verse 20 says, You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. According to the law of God, it would be sin if we were to offer anything that was not perfect. And friends, the reality of the Levitical system is that it was messy, it was bloody, it was gruesome. Why? Because sin is actually repulsive to a holy God. And the law demands a proportional payment for the infraction. The law of God is just. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, Indeed, under the law almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. All of the atoning sacrifices in the Old Testament point forward to Jesus. In fact, I would make this argument. Some people will, in their theology, erroneously, in my opinion, and I say this with humility, divide the Old Testament sacrificial system from the work of Jesus. But can I tell you this? Every ounce of blood that was spilt in the Old Testament on the Temple Mount under the authority of the law of God, it only had meaning in the fulfillment of the, uh, of the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the sacrifices back here would be meaningless without this, the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. It is through the shed blood of Jesus that every person who is part of the redeemed of God, both Jewish and Gentile, have hope for heaven. And here we find that all of those gory sacrificial laws point to our perfect Savior, Jesus. John says to, uh, about Jesus as He is coming down from the hill in John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so there again we have this idea of double imputation. Jesus being the perfect Lamb taking away our sin. We, we friends, we have no claim. Think about this. Jesus, John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If you are in Christ this morning, you have no claim over your sin anymore. Because Jesus has purchased it by His blood. He has taken it away. He has given us His righteousness. He has taken from us our legal debt and He has imputed to us an infinite amount of moral legal merit before the throne of God. So, with that in mind, do we come, having been made new in Christ under the double imputation, his, our sin for His righteousness, and do we just throw our hands up at the law and say, well, it doesn't matter anymore? Is that our response? Is that what we are to do? Because that's what people were doing in the context of 1 John and his writing. Well, I could give you the simple answer from Romans chapter 6. When Paul writes, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And his answer, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Apparently this antinomian problem really is a universal human problem. Well, if you set us free from the penalty of sin, what difference does it make? We can just forget the law altogether. But friends, we need to think in light of our new identity in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2 
This is a familiar passage to you. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I like the way the King James Version renders that a peculiar people. If you're around church long enough, you'll realize that's a much better representation of who we are. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The question we have to ask in light of this new identity that we have here and in 1 John as the called children of God is why are we a people for His own possession? Why are we a peculiar people? Is it because we are are achieving and striving after holiness in our own merit? Is it because we make good religious decisions? Is it because our works speak for us? No, then Jesus would not have to have appeared. But He did appear. And the reason He appeared was to purchase us by His blood that He would break the bonds of sin and give us the power to honor Him in all that we do. He came to make us a people that is different from all of the world. The world that lies in the power of the evil one. So then the question is, how do we live in light of the law? Knowing that Jesus came to fulfill all of the demands of that law, do we just abrogate it and forget it altogether? Or does the law still have implication after we come to salvation? When Jesus, by the work of the Spirit, takes out the heart of stone, puts in the heart of flesh, and we realize we're sinful and we run to Him in repentance and in faith, do we just forget the law? Well, I want to answer that question by a well-known narrative. If you'll turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. story about another very peculiar man, little fella named Zacchaeus. He entered Jericho, verse 1, and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into the sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass by that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they grumbled. He has gone into into be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save That which was lost. The first thing that we have to notice about this text is those that grumbled. Why did they grumble? They grumbled because Zacchaeus was a flagrant sinner. He had defrauded people. 
They said he's gone in to be, Jesus has gone in to be a guest of a man who's a sinner. I mean, the audacity that he would go in and spend time with this sinful person while all of us holy people stand out here and have a pity party. I mean, we've been working at this holy righteousness in our own strength our entire lives under the Jewish teaching. How dare he go into this house? I mean, really, Jesus, do you not understand this man actively disobeys the law of God? There's no hope for him. See the religious petulance there. You see, the real issue that the Pharisees had is they had a deficient view of the doctrine that drives holiness. Because they believed that they could be holy, devoid of genuine biblical doctrine. They, say, they saw, again, holiness as something that can come through their own obedience to the law in their own efforts. But that's not true. In fact, the only way that obedience can come is through what Jesus says here in verse 9. Today, salvation has come to this house since He also is a son of Abraham. Now, if those religious, we don't necessarily, there are arguments that can be made, but we don't know if those people were within earshot, but if they would have heard this statement, today salvation has come because this man is a son of Abraham, they would have said, so are we. We are part of the nation of Israel. And they would have been incensed because not only did they have the religious, or excuse me, the, the gene, genealogical, uh, the heritage to claim to be sons of Abraham, but in their mind, they had their own brand of holiness. It just turns out that it was deficient. Because here's the reality. If we look, and most of you know where I'm going, with Romans chapter 9, we find out that it's not the flesh that bears out the lineage of Abraham. It's the Spirit. Romans 9, verses 6 through 13. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed for all who are descended from Israel, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all who are children of Abraham are not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will, shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of the works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I have hated. Galatians chapter 3 verse 7 goes on to say, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You see, the problem 
was they had a deficient view of holiness and ultimately it led to an entirely erroneous view of salvation. Because it is salvation that comes from the Lord alone through the working of the Spirit alone that will ultimately issue into genuine holiness, not the other way around. You see, Jesus doesn't save holy people. Jesus takes sinful people and He makes them holy. The Son of God... Jesus said, came to seek and to save the lost. Now, it's a tragedy this morning that many people will take that beautiful statement. Can you find anything more beautiful in the Word of God? Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And as we stand this morning and we know in our own merits that we would be lost in this world without that hope, there can't be anything that makes us long to worship Him more. And yet there will be those who come and, and they will twist for some, the, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those which, were, which save the lost, excuse me. And they will add, for the Son of Man came wanting to save and to seek the lost. Or they'll say, for the Son of Man came trying to seek and to save the lost. Or the Son of Man came hoping to save that which was lost. But you know what I believe? I believe the angel in declaring the birth of Jesus got it right when they, when they said, She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. When Jesus showed up to Zacchaeus' house, he says it's necessary that you come down in your sinful rebellion, your, your active obedience against my Father and His holy law, and I'm going to meet with you at your house. And by the time we get to the house and Jesus makes the declaration that today salvation has come to this house, you are a son of faith, a son of Adam. Well, by that time, Zacchaeus has already given us an example of what it means to live as a redeemed person of God in light of the law. Look what he says. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and, I have to, and if I have defrauded anyone anything, I restore it fourfold. Now this is not Zacchaeus saying, I will earn my salvation by honoring the law. This is by obeying the law. This is Zacchaeus realizing Jesus Christ is the one who will take away his sin and will impute to him righteousness. And in light of that free gift of grace, in light of that salvation, something happens to Zacchaeus. You know what that something is? He is reminded Of Leviticus chapter 6 verse 5. Which records this in the law. Anything about which he has sworn falsely. He shall restore it full. And shall add a fifth to it. And give it to him who it belongs on the day that he realizes his guilt. Zacchaeus was a man who was so used to sinning. Zacchaeus was a man so dead in his trespasses and sin that he had defrauded so many people. Wouldn't it be fantastic if tomorrow morning every person that works at the IRS came to saving faith in Christ Jesus? We might all get a legitimate tax return. Anyway, sorry. But, but the theological implication, Zacchaeus was so numb to his sin. But what happens when he is born of the Spirit and he comes to saving faith in Jesus is he also is alive to the implications in his life of the law. And that he has defrauded so many people. 
And that that is a heinous sin in light of a holy God. And he does not respond giving back exactly to the law. He's not one of those people that flips through his Bible and goes, okay, I'm going to give exactly 5%, not a penny more, to the people that I have defrauded. That's what the law required. The law required that he restore what they had lost and then as restitution pay a 5% penalty. But Zacchaeus willingly and joyfully says, I'm not only going to do that, I'm going to pay fourfold what I've stolen. Why? Because grace in the mind of Zacchaeus was so beautiful. And he no longer had to look to the law for salvation. But now he could honor God understanding what would bring the Lord glory. The law could not extract out of Zacchaeus 5%. But when Christ came and poured out His blessing and really sought that which was lost and really redeemed Him, Zacchaeus didn't just come alive to the letter of the law. He came alive to the spirit of why God wrote the law in the first place. And that is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and all of your strength, and to love your neighbor as self. And friends, can I tell you this on the authority of the Word of God? All of the moralist and the liberal theologians in the world that want to make that into some political ploy, want to make that into some denominational bent, want to make that into something we do, they haven't even begun to understand the grace of God because it is only by grace that we can ever love God and we can ever love our neighbor. It is only by the grace of God that we can ever even understand His law. Because here, here's the reality, friends. That statement, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. We weren't just a little bit deficient. We didn't just have a few red check marks. You know, when you take your driving test when you're 16 years old and you get out of the car and you've got your fingers crossed hoping that you didn't get that one extra check mark, that wasn't us. We were completely morally bankrupt. It would be as though you went for your driver's test and the car just rolled onto the shoulder of the highway and the one examining you looked over and you were dead in the driver's seat. That's who we are without Christ. When Jesus says, I came to seek and to save that which was lost, that was no small task. C.H. Linsky writes this about those words, seeking and saving the lost. The seeking and saving power in this gospel is in the atonement which Jesus wrought which was effective through the promises of the Old Covenant and through the fulfillment of the New. The perfect tense, what has been lost, has its present connotation that it has been and consequentially still is lost. And this is the intensive sense that which has perished and is now in that condition a true description of the wreck that sin made of each one of us. We were far from God in night and darkness, shattered, broken, yea, dead and without a spark of spiritual vitality. That is what it means to be lost. It helps us to understand 
what seeking and saving had to do to reach and restore the lost. According to the task, so is the glory of its accomplishment. And so is the blessedness that it brings. The reason why Zacchaeus looked and said, I will restore fourfold what I stole was because he was eternally grateful for all that Christ had done. So may it be in our lives. uh, Let's pray. Father God, we come into your presence today. So thankful for your word, knowing that we are not seeking to earn our salvation in the shadow of your law. Knowing that the law, in fact, is merely our schoolmaster to teach us of our need for Christ. But may we in our salvation not turn into latent antinomians. Thinking that the law doesn't matter. That it has no implication. That it has no uh, moral weight. Father, might we understand your law according to your spirit. That we would love you well and we would love our neighbor well. Father, might we in our generation be given a measure of grace such that, that we take sin seriously. That we seek to put it to death in our lives individually in light of all that you have done in Christ. That our lives, even in this perverse generation, would bring your name glory for all of eternity. In Christ's name, amen.